0: Tonight's message will be the third in the series on the life of Gideon. We have looked at, in message number one, his call by God to a special service to overthrow the army of the Midianites. And then in the second message, we looked at Gideon's excuses for not responding to the call of God. He tried to present his inadequacies. And God took that as sort of an insult in reminding him, as he did with Moses, that it is God who has made the mouths of men.
1: It is God
0: who is enabled to do what he purposes to do. And we must not just use our inadequacies as excuses for not doing what God has called us to do. Now, tonight we're going to pick up in the narrative in chapter 6 and uh, verse 16. I'm going to read down uh, through verse 22 for the context tonight. The Lord said unto him, Surely I will be with thee, and thou shalt smite the Midianites as one man. And He said unto him, If now I have found grace in thy sight, then show me a sign that thou talkest with me. Depart not hence, I pray thee, until I come unto thee, and bring forth my present, and set it before thee. And he said, I will tarry until thou come again. And Gideon went in, and made ready a kid, and unleavened cakes, and an ephah of flour. The flesh he put in a basket, he put the broth in a pot, and brought it out unto him under the oak, and presented it. The angel of the Lord said unto him, Take the flesh and the unleavened cakes, and lay them upon this rock, and pour out the broth. And so, And he did so. And the angel of the Lord put forth the end of the staff that was in his hand and touched the flesh and the unleavened cakes, and there rose up fire out of the rock and consumed the flesh and the unleavened cakes. And then the angel of the Lord departed out of his sight. When Gideon perceived that he was an angel of the Lord, Gideon said, Alas, O Lord God, for because I have seen an angel of the Lord face to face. Tonight, we want to consider Gideon's request for a sign. Gideon's request for a sign. If you remember anything negative about Gideon, as we do about David, we always associate David's life negatively with his affair with Bathsheba. Gideon was used of God as listed in the 11th chapter of the book of Hebrews in the roll call of faith. So that's very commendable to get in the inducted into Hebrews chapter 11, which is the great hall of fame chapter of God's people. But as David had negative aspects, so Gideon had some. If you remember Gideon, for his negative aspects, he was always asking for a sign. Here he asked for a sign, and later on he asked for a sign, putting out the fleece. And that has become most noted in Christian circles when a person doesn't know what the will of God is, why they say they put out the fleece. Try to see which way God would have them to go. Tonight I'd like for us to look at this matter of seeking signs from God. See, if this be pleasing unto the Lord, or whether it is a manifestation not to confirm our faith, but actually an expression of unbelief once that God has made his will known unto us. Verse 16, the Lord now makes a promise to Gideon, surely. Surely, surely. Now, you can't get any more of a sure thing than when God makes a promise on something. God keeps his promises. His promises are yea and nay in Christ Jesus. While there may be requirements on the part of men to carry them out, yet God will see that they are carried out. In the hope of eternal life, which God who cannot lie promised before the world began. Titus 1, 2. So when God makes a promise, it's not a conditional type of thing that rests upon the faithfulness of men. God says, I'll bring it to pass. Now, he makes his mind known very clearly here to Gideon two or three times already. He said, Gideon, surely I will do this. I will be with thee. And thou shalt smite. Notice the I wills and thou shalt. That means Grace. And power and wisdom. And thou shalt smite the Midianites as one man. That is, when you go into battle against this great army of the Midianites, it's going to be as if they were all fused together in one person. You're just going to be fighting one on one. Because I'm going to be with you. And if the Lord be for us and with us, then what? Who can be against us if we understand the character of our God? But Gideon says, show me a sign that you're really going to do it. <laughs> so, this is not something that is commendable here, this seeking signs, once God has made His revealed will known unto us in regard to our service unto Him. We look down in verse 17, He said unto Him, If now I have found grace in thy sight. Now, hasn't God already said this? He said, I will, and you shall, Gideon said, well now, if I really understand you right, if I found grace in your sight, then show me a sign that you're talking with me. And as we touched on in the morning message, the condescension of our Heavenly Father, of how God makes His will known unto us and commands us to do something, and yet He permits us to fall into sin. And yet he accommodates himself to continue to work with us. God didn't have to give Gideon a sign, but he did. And he gave him another one too. But as we touched on this morning in the morning message, God commanded monogamy out of the children of Israel, out of men, out of the race of Adam, but he permitted polygamy. Doesn't mean that he approved of it, but he permitted it. He commanded them to eat the quail, or rather eat the Uh, manna from heaven in the wilderness. They said, we don't want that. We want quails to eat. And God permitted them to have quails. God commanded that they serve him and honor him as a king in a theocracy. That He was the sovereign lord and ruler over the nation of Israel. But they said, no, give us a king like all the other nations. We want a political system like everybody else. We want to be able to look up to a king And God gave them a king. Isn't it marvelous how that God can give us his word so precious and so true and so faithful to us, and yet we question and we doubt, and God, rather than just destroying us and saying, well, you bunch of rebels, he condescends and many times does what we ask him to do, even though it is a mark of unbelief on our part. Who is the angel of the Lord in the text, or the angel of God? Perhaps it's just a regular angel. Maybe it's one of the archangels, the archangel. Maybe it's the angel of the covenant, which is the Lord Jesus Christ himself, which he appeared before his incarnation. There was a ministry of the Lord, of Jesus, the Son of God, the second person of the Trinity, prior to his incarnation he was known as the lord of the covenant the angel of the covenant perhaps this is that person but when he made his appearance here while gideon said let me go and prepare a sacrifice for you and he did so he was entertaining angels unaware perhaps and so he brought the sacrifice back to the angel The angel performed a miraculous intervention, brought fire down and consumed the sacrifice. And then the angel of the Lord departed out of Gideon's sight. And when Gideon then perceived, hey, this was an angel, the angel of the Lord, while he says, O Lord God, that sovereign Jehovah, I have seen an angel of the Lord face to face. And the Lord said unto him, Peace be to thee, fear not, thou shalt not die. Again, as I've pointed out to you, just as sideline information in your study of the Bible, wherever you find angels appearing unto men in the Scriptures, it always associates with deep reverence and fear. We have no casual uh, uh, response on the part of men when angels make their appearance. And that's why I, I am thoroughly convinced after reading uh, Joseph Smith's account in his so-called visitation from the angel Moroni, in which that God uh, revealed his latter-day truth unto Joseph Smith to start the Mormon church. Why, Joseph Smith said he woke up in the night and there was an angel sitting there on his bed. He just sat there and talked with him two or three hours. And he wrote down all what God would have him to do. And the angel said, You go into a certain hill in the state of New York and dig in the earth there and you'll find some golden plates and those golden plates will be my words, like the Bible itself. And all of Joseph Smith's account of that so-called visit from the angel Moroni is that there was no fear, there was no distrust on the part of Joseph Smith. He just sat there and as if that was a common day occurrence. That's why I know that this wasn't an angel of the Lord that visited Joseph Smith. Because whenever the angels of the Lord visited people in the Bible, there was a deep reverence and fear. And they knew something supernatural was visiting uh, them. Now then, let's look at this subject for our consideration tonight. Is it proper to seek signs from God? Is it proper to seek a sign from the Lord? This is not the same as interpreting his providence. It is difficult sometimes to interpret providence, because sometimes God's providence takes us into the whirlwind. Sometimes God's providence blows in a straight wind. We can tell where that's coming from, where it's going. But other times, while he speaks to us in his providence out of the whirlwind. And when we get in those kind of situations, we have to trust his promise or his word that he has made known unto us that he will be with us. He has a purpose. He's working out. We may not know what it is now, but we'll know hereafter. But instead of trying to ask God for some sign to let us know what he would have us uh, to do. Let's look in Matthew chapter 12. It was a characteristic of the people to whom our Lord ministered unto. That they were forever seeking after a sign. In Matthew chapter 12, if you would, and verses 38 and 39. Then certain of the scribes and of the Pharisees answered, saying, Master, we would see a sign from thee. But he answered and said unto them, An evil and adulterous generation seeketh after a sign. And there shall no sign be given it but the sign of the prophet Jonas. For as Jonas was three days and three nights in the whale's belly, so shall the Son of Man be three days and three nights in the heart of the earth. The men of Nineveh shall rise in judgment with this generation and shall condemn it, because they repented at the preaching of Jonas, and behold, a greater than Jonas is here. The queen of the south shall rise up in the judgment with this generation and shall condemn it, for she came from the uttermost parts of the earth to hear the wisdom of Solomon, and behold, a greater than Solomon is here." Now, they were seeking after a sign from God, and God had given them the greatest sign that he would ever commit himself unto men to know. And that was the incarnation of Jesus Christ. You want a sign? Then look at the mystery of godliness. God was manifested in the flesh in the person of the Lord Jesus Christ. And yet the scribes and Pharisees says, show us a sign to show us that you're from God. Jesus said, an evil and adulterous generation seeketh after a sign. That was a characteristic of the generation that our Lord ministered unto. He described them as an evil, an unfaithful generation of of people because they were always manifesting unbelief and they were seeking signs from God as an evidence that he was in their midst. Jesus said there's two illustrations of why you're going to be judged. That is, that generation. He said, I'll give you but one sign, the sign of the prophet Jonas. Jonas was three days and three nights in the whale's belly. So the Son of Man shall be three days and three nights in the heart of the earth. Hence, he was saying there's but one sign I'm going to give this generation. And that's the gospel message. The death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus Christ. That's the only one that I'll give. And he said, the men of Nineveh, those who... Uh, Jonah preached unto, would rise up in the day of judgment and condemn the generation that Jesus was preaching unto, because they, in Nineveh, repented at Jonah's. But here, a greater manifestation of God's presence in the midst of men was there in the person of Jesus Christ than it was in Jonah in the middle of Nineveh. And yet, that generation did not repent. And so Jesus said, that's your sign, I'm here. And he said another illustration, the queen of the south, queen of Sheba, shall rise up in the judgment with this generation and shall condemn it. Why? Because she sought from the uttermost parts of the earth, went to great lengths to hear of the wisdom of Solomon. And there's a greater than Solomon right here in your midst. You know, if you want to know something from God, you've got to put out some effort to find it out. Queen of Sheba was given an inquiring mind and a warm heart. She no doubt sacrificed a lot of trouble to get over to hear Solomon. But when she went home, what did she go home saying? The half has not yet been told of uh, of what I was unable to hear. I can't even begin to tell you what wisdom God has given that man. Now Jesus said, "A greater than Solomon's, right here in your midst, and I'm ministering unto you, and you're wanting a sign from heaven." He said, that means that you have an evil and an unfaithful heart, you're not really interested in the God's truth, you're only wanting some confirmation to confirm your own sin and its lifestyle. Now this grieved our Lord. Look over in the Gospel of Mark chapter eight. It grieved our Lord when people continually asked him for a sign. Our Lord did the teaching. He taught very clearly. He taught precisely. He did many wonderful works to substantiate his own ministry. But it grieved him when the the multitudes were asking for signs. In uh, verse 11, he had just fed the 4,000 previous to this. The Pharisees came forth and began to question with him, seeking of him a sign from heaven, doing what? Tempting him. Tempting him. How do you tempt somebody? How do you test somebody? You can always seem to tell, can't you, when people are trying to test you. (laughs) See how you're going to They set you up with a loaded question or something. And here Jesus sensed that. And this was not a sincere request. This was a desire for a sign. Prove us who you are. Verse 12, he sighed deeply in his spirit and saith, Why doth this generation seek after a sign? Verily I say unto you, there shall no sign be given unto this generation. Notice that the seeking of signs grieved the master. Why? Because there was sufficient evidence that God had already made his mind known to men. Gideon had been clearly told, I will be with you, and you shall destroy the army as if you just had to deal with one man. And yet Gideon said, show me a sign if you're really talking to me. And Jesus is explaining this to us in his own earthly ministry that when people would come to him asking for a sign, he took it as a reflection upon his very character and upon his very teachings that these were inadequate to demonstrate that he was God's messenger in the flesh. So they sought a sign, and our Lord rebuked them for it. 1 Corinthians chapter 1. This was characteristic of the children of Israel. 1 Corinthians chapter 1. Verse 22. For the Jews require what? A sign. And the Greeks seek after wisdom. How does the Christian messenger respond to either Jewish desires or Grecian desires? Notice, but we preach Christ crucified. There's the gospel message, the message of Jonas. That's the only message. That is, we do not look for signs to reaffirm our faith, but we look to what God has promised us in the gospel. We preach Christ crucified unto the Jews, which was a what? A stumbling block. Because they wanted a sign that when God sent their Messiah, he'd come riding in on a mighty white stallion, overthrow the armies of Rome, and give their empire back to them. Instead, God gave them a crucified, suffering Messiah. And they stumbled at that. Said, this can't be our Messiah. That one hanging there on a cross, the Messiah, the Deliverer of Israel, the Savior of Israel, no way. And they stumbled over that and they rejected the foundation stone that Peter describes in, first, in his first epistle. They rejected that stone that God sent. The builders threw it out and said this is not the proper foundation for our relationship with God. We preach Christ crucified unto the Jews, a stumbling block, and to the Greeks foolishness, but unto them which are called, both Jews and Greeks, Christ, the power of God and the wisdom of God. You want to know what the power of God is? Don't go out and ask God to send fire down from heaven to prove you how powerful he is. Go over there in Jerusalem and look at that empty tomb. There you'll see the power of God. You want some demonstration of how wise God is? Where that he can separate all the elements and put them back together in chemical form and then prove to you that he exists? No. The gospel is, go and look at the character of God of how he can remain just and yet be the justifier of him that believes in Jesus. You see, the gospel message itself is the sign. It is the content of the message that's to be given unto this generation that Christ ministered unto and all the way through to the end of the world. For we are only authorized to preach whatsoever he has commanded us. And lo, I'll be with you even unto the end of the world. So we're not to get carried away with supernatural gifts and signs. And yet that seems to be the popular concept of Christianity today. You want to get a crowd and fill a church. Well, say something miraculous is going on over there. Somebody gets healed or something like this. And people will drive for miles hoping to get to see a sign. We saw it here down south of us here two or three weeks ago when uh, the Roman Catholic lady uh, came over here and uh, supposedly uh, the Virgin Mary was speaking uh, to her. And so-called sound people from all over the four-state area drove down there just to be in the presence, hoping that God might send a sign. Is it interesting that those who look for signs the most have the least understanding of the gospel? Isn't that an interesting thing? And bless their hearts, some of those people were so sincere they looked at the sun and lost their eyesight. They need to look at the other Son, shouldn't they? They need to look at the Son of God in His incarnation. God manifested in the flesh, Son of God and Son of Man. One person and two divine natures. They need to look at His sinless life. They need to see how he fulfilled every detail of the law of God. They need to look at his substitutionary death of how that he, the just, died in the place of the unjust. He might bring us to God. They need to see that how though he had no sin, yet he was made sin for us. He who knew no sin, that we might be made the righteousness of God in him. There's your message. They need to see how that he was buried in the tomb. How he said, I lay down my life and I take it up again. No man taketh it from me. We need to see how he ascended into the heavens and sat down on the right hand of God, sharing in his humanity the throne rights of deity. We need to see that all power, all authority is given unto him in heaven and earth. Now, this is the content. This is what God has given us to confirm our faith, not other extra signs and miracles. We have those in the early New Testament times, and they are there for a purpose. They are there to confirm the apostles' acts, and the apostles recorded those acts by inspiration of the Spirit and left them to us in the recorded pages of the Bible. And the apostles passed from the scene, and the supernatural gifts of signs and wonders also passed from the scene. So today, I believe it is a grief unto the Lord that when he has given us such a complete, thorough presentation of how he is a just and holy God, and yet he can justify the most ungodly sinner who comes to him by Jesus Christ, I believe it must be a deep, deep grief unto God the fact that he has recorded all of this, that men and women come to him and say, Show me a sign to increase my faith. (laughs) I again say, look back to the prophet Jonas. That's the only sign that God's going to give you. Only one. Don't become like the Jews. Don't become like the Greeks. But if you want to know the power of God and the wisdom of God, look at Christ in the gospel. Now, that's utterly boring to many people. I tell you, you've got to know that price of the gospel in order that it might not be boring. Foolishness unto Greeks. That doesn't make any sense. A mutilated man on a cross dying so that I might know how to live. That doesn't make sense to a Greek. But it does to a Greek who has been called effectually by the ministry of the Holy Spirit. That's what makes the difference. Now, to demand a sign from the Lord to declare that his revealed word is insufficient. Would there be any of my hearers tonight who would stand and say that God hasn't left us a sufficient testimony of himself? I won't. God has recorded everything necessary for us to know. Hebrews chapter 1, verses 1 and 2. Sundry times in divers manners, God in times past has spoken to us by the prophets, but hath in these last days spoken unto us by Jesus Christ. We have the record. John says in his epistle, this is the record that God has given us of his Son. I trust that record. And if we do not trust that and ask for signs, then we're merely indicating to God that his word is not sufficient to increase our faith. Those who make that demand are, in essence, exercising unbelief in the record which God has given us of his Son. How great does God view the word that he has spoken? Go back to Psalm 138. What about the spoken word of God that has now been inscripturated or recorded in the Bible? Psalm 138. Verse 2, it's one of the Psalms of David. I will worship toward thy holy temple and praise thy name for thy loving kindness and for thy truth, for thou hast magnified thy word above all thy name. Now, a person's name is what's associated with their character. You say a person's name and immediately your thoughts go something you know about that, that person. God has said, my word is exalted above my very character. Now, we're treading in some deep water right here. Deep, deep water. God's word is held by himself even higher than his own character. We say as human beings, a person's no better than their what? Than their word. If you can't trust somebody's words, then you can't trust their character. God says, I uphold my promises What I speak. I view that as in higher honor than my very character itself. And when we come to the pages of the Bible, then we need to approach it as such, that this is God's word and we should hold it in reverence and high esteem. He has gone to great lengths to preserve it. Written over 1,600 years span of time, by some 39 or 40 authors, yet all inspired by the Holy Spirit so that it is without mixture of error and contains the very words of the living God. And if God has given us this book, then we need to receive it and not ask for confirmation of our faith on some extra-biblical measure of some sign or some act to be shown from heaven. Jesus said in Mark chapter 13 verse 21, heaven and earth may pass away, but my word shall never pass away. First Peter chapter 2 and verse 25, Peter there says, the word of the Lord endureth forever. And it's in this word that we are to wait and to hope and to trust. They that wait upon the Lord shall do what? Renew their strength. Now that's not a passive thing. That's not somebody sitting on a street corner waiting for a streetcar to happen. It's a dependence upon God. It's meaning they that wait upon the Lord, they that acknowledge that unless the Lord builds the house, they that labor, build it in vain. They know that God has commanded us as human responsible free agents to repent and believe the gospel. And yet the repentant sinner knows that God and change his heart. We know as Christians what our duties are unto God as spelled out in the book. And yet at the same time, we know that we have to be aided divinely by God's grace to enable us to do what he asks of us. So we look unto the Lord and we wait and hope and trust in him. I believe that Gideon should have accepted the word of God at once and obeyed the call of God without waiting a moment. When God made it very clear to Gideon through the angel, I will be with you and you shall destroy the Midianites, Gideon's response should have been immediate. All right, Lord, where's the sword? Let me go at it. His response was directly opposite, that of Isaiah, when Isaiah was called by God to his work. Let's go over there now, Isaiah, the sixth chapter. Isaiah received a vision of God, a call from the Lord to special service. In verse 1, in the year that King Uzziah died, I saw also the Lord sitting upon a throne high and lifted up. His train filled the temple. It stood, above it stood the seraphim. Each one had six wings. With twain he covered his face. With twain he covered his feet. With twain he did fly. And one cried unto another and said, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. The whole earth is full of his glory. Uh, Could I interject something here? Allow me to do so. This was written in one of the most apostate times in the history of Israel. In fact, God even told Isaiah, not anybody going to listen to you. But did you see what Isaiah saw the Lord as being? The whole earth was filled with His glory. Did you see that? That's why as I chide my post-millennial friends sometimes who say, well, the kingdom can't be here, there's just not enough glory (laughs) yet. I say, maybe you're not looking in the right places. How many people have to be saved for God to be glorified? Hmm? God is glorified in his own holy character. He didn't have to save a sinner, but it pleased him to save sinners. But Isaiah saw a vision of the sovereign God that everything that was going on on earth was under the control of God. He said the whole earth is filled with the glory of God. Maybe when we get discouraged about seemingly so little happening in our day in which that we want to see a great moving of God, maybe we're not looking in the right places. <laughs> maybe we're like Elijah under the juniper tree, feeling sorry for ourselves and saying we're the only ones left. God's just not saving anybody. And I and God rebuked Elijah. He said, Elijah, I've still got 7,000 up perfect number out here. And evidently, Elijah didn't know there was anybody else left. God said, I've still got 7,000 out here having bowed knee to Baal. God can manifest His glory because He is inherently glorious. The whole earth was filled with the glory of God, and yet Isaiah was given a commission to go and preach and God told him, they're not going to listen to you. It was a message of reprobation rather than a message of conversion. Look on. The post of the door moved at the voice of him that cried. The house was filled with smoke. Then said, I, woe is me, for I am undone, because I am a man of unclean lips. Dwell in the midst of a people of unclean lips, for mine eyes have seen the King, the Lord of hosts. You see, where is God at? He's in his glory. What does that mean? He means he's king. What does mean? He's sovereign. That's what it means to see God in his glory. Just the fact that he can exercise the option of his own will, do what he pleases, that's his glory.
1: Moses said, show me your glory.
0: God says, you hide over there in the rock. or You can just see a little glimpse of it. And I'll pass by and I'll show you my glory. And the scripture speaking symbolically says that God showed Moses his hinder part. He couldn't show the complete portion of it. But it wasn't a physical image. For God went on to explain to Moses what his glory consisted in. Who knows what it was? I will show mercy on whom I will show mercy and on whom I will harden. I will harden. That's God's glory. He has the right to do with creatures as he sees best. And you've never seen God in his glory the way Isaiah saw him until you bowed to that sovereignty. That's his glory doesn't mean that you've got to see a whole bunch of sparklers and Roman candles and everything going off on the 4th of July for God to manifest his glory. Isaiah saw the glory of God. The whole earth was filled with his glory. And then he saw himself. (laughs) He saw himself as an unclean man. Then verse 6, Then flew one of the seraphims unto me, having a live coal in his hand, which he had taken with the tongs from off the altar. He laid it upon my mouth. And said, Lo, this hath touched thy lips, and thine iniquity is taken away, and thy sin purged. Also I heard the voice of the Lord saying, Whom shall I send, and who will go for us? Then said I, what? Send me a sign, Lord. (laughs) Is that right? (laughs) Lord, give me a sign that you're talking to me. (laughs) That's what Gideon said. That's what Gideon said. Isaiah saw the glory of God in the gospel. He responded immediately, Here am I, Lord, send me. And he said, Go and tell this people. Hear ye indeed, but understand not. See ye indeed, but perceive not. Make the heart of this people fat, and make their ears heavy, and shut their eyes, lest they see with their eyes, and hear with their ears, and understand with their heart, and convert and be healed. In other words, Isaiah's ministry was a hardening ministry. Now, how does God harden people? Does God take a soft heart and say, I don't want people to have soft hearts. I want them to hate me. Is that the way he does it? No. How did he harden Pharaoh? He sent his revealed will unto Pharaoh and then left the response up to the free will and ability of Pharaoh without giving him any grace. And beloved... Any time that God makes his will known unto you, and he leaves it up to us to respond, we'll always harden ourselves because we don't want God to tell us what his will is. That's how God hardens people. Say, I tell one of my children, carry out the trash can. If I leave them to themselves, they're not going to do it. (laughs) I've lived around my house too long. Oh, I'm kidding. If I tell a person what to do, though, and it's something that goes against the flesh, and then I leave them there, they'll harden their heart, and God permits it to occur. And that's how he does it. That's how he hardens people's hearts. He presents the gospel. And incidentally, Jesus quoted this very verse here to his own generation, and Paul in the book of Acts quoted it in his generation. Every time the gospel is preached and men do not welcome it and receive it, there's a hardening process that goes on. Men are left to themselves. Isaiah said, how long do I do this? How long is this new occupation of mine going to last? Then I said, Lord, how long? He answered, until the cities be wasted without inhabitant and the houses without man, and the land be what? Utterly desolate. And the Lord hath removed men far away, and there be a great forsaking in the midst of the land. That's how long, Isaiah, as long as the cities are there, and they're destroyed. But yet in it shall be a tenth, and it shall return. There's that seed of grace. And shall be eaten as a teal tree, and as an oak, whose substance is in them when they cast their leaves. So the holy seed shall be the substance thereof. God has his elect, even in an apostate world. And even though it may look like things are getting worse and worse and worse, note, Isaiah saw the glory of God. And the glory of God was not a converted world. The glory of God was in his right to exercise his sovereignty, to either convert In grace and mercy, or to harden and cast people by and leave them justly in their sins. Paul, in the ninth chapter of Romans, described that in that very aspect. God will have mercy on whom he will have mercy, and whom he will, he hardens. That's his glory. Isaiah saw it. And because he saw it, Brother Joe, immediately there was a response of submission. Unto the Lord. It's when we don't have clear sights into the vision of God's glory that we begin to question. and Say, oh, give me a sign. Confirm that you're an all-powerful God. God, assure me that you're in control. When we start talking like that, it's because we are not seeing God in his glory. Suppose that you had been Job and all those things started happening to you. What would you have asked for? Lord, show me a sign. (laughs) Oh, Job so trusted the sovereignty of his God that he said, though he'd slay me, yet I will trust him. There's faith. And that's what God was looking for in Gideon, as we saw in last Sunday night's message. He wasn't looking for Gideon's gifts. He wasn't looking for Gideon's wealth. He had none. He wasn't looking for Gideon's prestige. He had no family history of might and honor. He was looking for that trust in his word that he made known unto him. Now finally, go to the New Testament book of Galatians. You see here the apostle Paul responded as Gideon should have. Instead of asking for a sign, notice what Paul did when God called him into his service. Verse 13. Well, you have heard of my conversion in time past in the Jews' religion, how that beyond measure I persecuted the church of God and wasted it, and profited in the Jews' religion, above many mine equals in mine own nation, being more exceeding zealous of the traditions of my fathers. But when it pleased God who separated me from my mother's womb and called me by his grace to reveal his Son in me, that I might preach him among the heathen, What's that next word? Immediately, I conferred not with flesh and blood, neither went I up to Jerusalem to them which were apostles before me, but I went into Arabia and returned again to Damascus. Paul went to Bible school there in the desert. And God taught him his theology. He said, I wasn't taught by the other apostles. When God was pleased, though God the sovereign God who separated me from my mother's womb for a purpose and in time called me by his grace. When that call came immediately, I responded to that call. And you read his conversion testimony in Acts chapter 9, when he cried out on the road to Damascus, Who art thou, Lord? And the reply was, I am Jesus. And then the next thing that Saul of Tarsus said, What wilt thou have me to do? And the answer was, you go into such, such a city, and there a man will tell you what you're to do. His name is Ananias. And there Paul learned that he was chosen to be a vessel of God, to preach the gospel before kings and the children of Israel, and to suffer many things for the kingdom of God's sake. Paul says, I didn't hold back. I went immediately, as soon as God made his will known unto me. Could I be speaking to somebody here tonight that you have now learned from the Bible what God's will is for you in Christ Jesus and through the general call of the gospel preacher? You have heard that it is God's will for you to repent and believe the gospel? My friend, if you do not respond even to that tonight, there's going to be more of a hardening process if you come back to the next assembly. Every time we heal the will of God in the gospel and we say, no, I won't become a Christian. It'll be more difficult the next time. Harder and harder and harder. Now nothing's too hard for God. but My friend, it may be a mark of reprobation passing by for you to say, I'm not going to listen to what God's word has to say. I've got a life. I've got to live first. So many people say, well, one of these days when I get all my wild oats sowed, then I'll settle down and become a Christian. Isn't that interesting? They never do it unless God intervenes and makes them a Christian. And now, when we become a Christian, we hear the will of God taught to us as we heard this morning in other messages. As we read ourselves and we see what God's will for us is in Christ Jesus. It is now our response to immediately embrace that which makes known which God is pleased to make known unto us. Confer not with flesh and blood. Don't seek for signs to aid your faith. Look to the message of the gospel. So I hope these lessons that we have learned from the call, the excuses, and the request of Gideon can be helpful and practical in our own Christian experience. Let's stand together.